Well, good morning. My name is Jason, one of the pastors here at Community Church, and I am really glad that each and every one of you is here today. If you've been here forever or you're just getting started out, uh, I'm really glad you're here. If you've got your kids in public school, private school, homeschool, preschool, college, law school, we got it all, and we're glad that you're here today. I love that song, Jireh. You know what Jireh means? God will provide. God will provide. What a wonderful truth to sing, that God will provide. We want to take a moment before we get into the message this morning to give, to first of all, acknowledge that God is enough, that God will provide, and we want to give back in response to this. I love the way the Apostle Paul says this uh, in 1 Timothy 6.17. He says, command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant nor to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, but to put their hope in God who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. Command them to do good, to be rich in good deeds, and to be generous and willing to share. In this way, they will lay up treasure for themselves as a firm foundation for the coming age so that they may take hold of the life that is truly life. What an opportunity we have right now to, to worship, to acknowledge and say, God, you are enough, you will provide, and to give back and to invest in eternity, to invest in the kingdom and to take hold of that life right now, which is truly life. So one of the things we do here each week is we, we, we give back to the Lord and we have a time to pray. But I just want to let you know that you can, you can give online, you can give through our app, uh, you can go old school and take out the envelopes and put it on one of the uh, offering boxes on your way out. But uh, we do this not out of compulsion, but in response to God's generosity towards us. So would you pray with me? Father, we thank you for your goodness to us. We thank you for your provision. Oh, do we thank you. We thank you for the offer of the life that is truly life that you give us. We do say thank you that you are enough and you do provide. We ask now that you take what we give back our humble offerings and you multiply them for your kingdom. Lord, this morning, we ask that you would help us to be rooted and established in love. That together as a church, we would be able to grasp how wide and long and deep and high is the love of Christ. So Father, as we open your word together, would your Holy Spirit be our teacher? And wherever we are in our journeys, Lord, open up our hearts, open up our minds to receive what you have for us. I pray that my words are clear and they're helpful and they bring you glory and honor. Burn off whatever doesn't do those things. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Question this morning. Are you good enough for Jesus? Are you good enough for Jesus? And how do you respond 
to that question, are you good enough to live close to Jesus? Are you close enough to Jesus to live the good life? We're in week five of our series, and we've been looking at a better way to the good life. This morning, we want to dig into this question of really how, how do we live our lives? What's it like to live in the kingdom? And are we good enough? What's that look like? As we think about going back to school, I was reminded uh, Kim and I uh, celebrated our 30th wedding anniversary this week. Amen? Yeah. So I'm in a nostalgic mood. And we started off our married life together as, uh, as wealthy students. I was in graduate school. She was finishing up her nursing degree. We lived in married student housing at Purdue. If you've ever seen, if you've been there, some of you have. I think they've torn the buildings down. I think it was an act of grace that they did that. But one of the things we've done throughout our marriage is we've taken lots of walks together. That's my free marriage advice. Take as many walks as you can together. But we started off our marriage really going on walks, and we would walk down State Street, which is the main drag at, uh, at Purdue University. And it was interesting, you know, we'd walk on a Saturday night, and, and, and on State Street you would see a variety of responses to the question, are you good enough for Jesus? IU fans, there are some believers at Purdue, so just, just know that. It is true. But we would see, you know, we would, first of all, we'd start our walk at Papa John's. We'd scrape up $1.90 to get breadsticks. That was the big treat for the week. But then, you know, we'd walk by Fraternity Row. We'd, we'd walk by various churches, Protestant, Catholic. And then you'd keep walking, and there's this place called a chocolate shop that they don't sell chocolate there. It's really a bar. And it would start... It would start uh, all the row of bars. So you would see a variety of opportunities along State Street. And I believe that's representative of different ways we might respond to that question, are you good enough for Jesus? Some, I believe, would, would say um, they might fall into this, uh, what I'm going to call compartmentalization would say, there's no way I'm, I'm, I'm really good enough for Jesus, I'm gonna, but I'm going to compartmentalize my life. And as we would observe people, there would be, uh, I'm going to offend everybody here, so I'll start here. There would be the Roman Catholic version of that, which would, we would go to Mass on the way to the fraternity parties and hit the bars and all that, and it would be like, I'll pay my sin tax up front, and then I'll go do whatever I want to do. So we'd heard. Then there's the Protestant version of that that would be, hey, I've prayed a prayer. I know I'm saved by grace. I'm good. There ain't nothing that Jesus won't forgive me of. So I'm going to go do whatever I want to do. Am I connecting with anybody? Just in the rearview mirror, I'm sure. But there are, that's, that's one response. There's the compartmentalization. I believe there's also the comparison. Hey, compared to all these other knuckleheads, I'm doing pretty good. I'm not that bad. I don't believe that stops in college. 
I think we still do that sometimes. And then there's what I would simply call the critique. To not look within, but to always look out and say, well, thank God I'm not like those people over there. So let me ask you this morning, are you good enough for Jesus and how do you respond? Which of those responses might you have? We're going to dive into some of Jesus' core teaching this morning, but I want to start with a simple bottom line. And we've been working around this, we've been getting at the issues of the heart in this series in Matthew 5, but I want to lay it out to you this way. I said, if you want to have the good life... You have to change what you now want. If you want to have the good life, you have to want to change what you now want. So we're going to dive into matters of the heart this morning. And I want to take you to Matthew 5, verse 17. Jesus says this, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly, I tell you, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen, will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. Therefore, anyone who sets aside one of the least of these commands and teaches others accordingly will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. I want to make a few observations about Jesus' teaching here. I believe it's through some contrast here that we can see what Jesus is getting at. First of all, he draws a comparison between what the, Pharise- what the Pharisees think. Don't think this. I mean, J- Jesus always knows what's going on. So there's a comparison between what the, what the Pharisees think and what Jesus says, I say to you or I tell you. Let me say from the beginning, there's a question of authority here. Who has the right interpretation? There's always the what do we think versus what does Jesus say. Let's go with what Jesus says. Secondly, there's a contrast between abolishing and fulfilling. Now, What the Pharisees and teachers of the law or the scribes had in mind with Jesus, their issue with Jesus was, look, you're hanging out in the bad places on State Street here. You're hanging out with the sinners. You're hanging out with the prostitutes. I shouldn't go there on State Street. But you're hanging out with the wrong crowd. And are you soft on sin? Because I I, I see the company that you're keeping, Jesus, and are you soft on sin? Jesus is going to say, hey, I didn't come here to abolish the law. I didn't come here to lower the standard. I came here to fulfill the law and the prophets. What's the law and the prophets? It's the Old Testament. What we know is the Old Testament. 
the first five of the Pentateuch, the prophets, the whole deal, Jesus is saying, I came to fulfill this. Everything points to me. What an amazing, what a staggering claim of authority. They would have looked at him not as the uh, multiple-degreed person. Here's the hick from Nazareth. Who is he to say he has this authority? But that's the authority that he claims. He came, he came to fulfill. There's a contrast between the least and the greatest. And it comes out of this idea of authority where Jesus, you know, I'm, I'm not going to undo any of it. You can't pick and choose. you got to take the whole thing. He's the fulfillment of the whole thing. And then finally, there's this contrast between the righteousness of the Pharisees and the righteousness that Jesus calls for. Let's talk about that for a minute. What's the issue with the Pharisees? But first of all, what is this word righteousness? Righteousness has to do with this idea of right relationship, first of all, with God, right relationship with others. Harkens back to the, the, you know, the great commandment to love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself. It's a fulfillment of the law. We look at the Ten Commandments. The first four have to do with our vertical relationship with God, the last six have to do with our horizontal relationship with other people. One of the things I, I, I loved about our kids' camp a, a few weeks ago, the verse that we, we, we focused on, that Carissa and her team focused on, was love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. It summarizes the whole deal. So what's the problem with the Pharisees? I mean, they externally seem to do the right things. They're probably the backbone of the church here. But what's the problem? What's the issue with the Pharisees? Well, there's something about the external versus the internal. Jesus says this in Luke 18, gives this classic story. He says, to those who were confident of their own righteousness and looked down on everyone else. Have you ever been there? Have you ever had that attitude? Nobody say that out loud, but have you ever had that attitude? Jesus gave them a parable. He said, there's, there's a, two men went to the temple to pray, one Pharisee and the other the tax collector. And the Pharisee stood by himself and prayed, God, I thank you that I am not like other people, the robbers, the evildoers, the adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week and give a tenth of all I get. But the tax collector stood at a distance. He would not even look up to heaven but beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. I tell you that this man, says Jesus, rather than the other, went home justified before God for all those who exalt themselves will be humbled and those who humble themselves will be exalted. What's the problem of the Pharisee? There's a heart issue. There's a heart issue. There's something about the external and the internal. This idea that I could be confident in my own righteousness. 
Jesus in the rest of chapter 5 will give some illustrations, some examples. Verse 21, he says, you've heard it said to the people long ago, you shall not murder. Sixth commandment. And anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. He raises the bar, he raises the standard, not just the act, but the intent, the heart. Exhibit B, verse 27, you have heard that it was said you shall not commit adultery, but I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. What is Jesus after? Jesus is after the heart. The level of desire, not just the act, but the desire, what's underneath all of that. It is a comprehensive deal. Now, 2,000 years later, anger and lust are no longer an issue in our world. (laughs) Isn't it remarkable? I mean, I I was reading about like the metaverse and all that crazy stuff. But these, these teachings are just as relevant today. For all our technology, we still got all kinds of hard issues. So how do you respond to that? You can look at that standard and say, guilty? Guilty? Now, we can respond theologically, and let's do a little bit of that. Let me take you to Romans chapter 3, verse 20. Paul says this, therefore, no one will be declared righteous in God's sight by the works of the law. Rather, through the law, we become conscious of our sin. But now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been made known, to which the law and the prophets testify. This righteousness is given through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There is no difference between Jew and Gentile, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And all are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. Is that true? 100%. I can't earn it, right? This, Jesus isn't preaching a works righteousness here. Jesus and Paul aren't in conflict We're saved by grace through faith. That's what Jesus did on the cross. We're justified. He paid the penalty. All that stuff we talk about with the cross. It's true. So I would ask you this morning, have you taken that step? Have you put your faith and trust in Christ? Doesn't mean you have to have it all figured out. You can say, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. But have you taken that initial step? That says, hey, I was heading down this way. Now I'm going to put my trust in you and I'm going to head the other way. 100%. I want to continue, though, because I think sometimes we do this. Uh, Last week I had uh, Craig Westrick up here and we were talking about the Rooted Summit event. You know, kind of a biblical worldview. A great opportunity for us. One of the Summit guys, I don't think he'll actually be one that's here, but... uh, Matt heard, he made this observation, and I want to build on that because I think that's really helpful for us in this moment. He said, when you look at 
following Jesus. And you look at this wonderful verse in John 14, 6, where Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes through the Father except through me. Heard makes this observation, and I want to build on it. He says, you know, a lot of times in the church, we have what he calls a truncated gospel. It means it's, it's, it's kind of incomplete. Because we do this, we say, all right, uh, the way, what's the way? The way is my behavior. The externals, these are the things that I do. Yeah, that, that matters. The truth, this is my doctrine. This is what I believe to be true. I just read your Romans 3, classic good stuff right there. But what about the life? What about the life? What, what about that with God relationship on the daily, wherever we are, what about that life? I think he's right. Sometimes we get just those first two and we don't do enough to think about what is my life. Not just my behavior, but at the, at the heart level, where am I? Where am I? Because the picture that Jesus gives us of life is so rich. Because he gives us a picture of attachment love that is more powerful than anything else in this world. Jesus in John 15, he'll say, I'm the vine, you're the branches. Remain in me and I in you and you can bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. So there's a connection here. There is a Life with God that matters. So yeah, we can have the right moral code, we can have the right doctrine, but do you have that life that is truly life, a life with God that empowers you? John 14, 15, Jesus says this. He says, if you love me, keep my commands or keep my commandments. And so many of the times when we look at this and, and we say that, okay, my obedience, your obedience, our obedience is an indicator of our love. That's true. Absolutely. At the same time, our love, our attachment with God, love is the fuel, is the energy is the nourishment for our obedience. It is that love, it is that connection, it is that relationship at the heart level that fuels our obedience. If you want to have the good life, you have to want to change what you now want. So there's an opening up of our heart to connect that we need to work on. So are you good enough for Jesus? Maybe the better question is, are you close enough to Jesus? Are you close enough? I want to suggest to us this morning that as we think about what that looks like for us, I want to give you some action steps. I want to give you some what nows. The first one is this. I believe that we need to evaluate our appetites. 
Evaluate your appetites. What do I mean by that? What are all your desires? What's the menu of all your desires? What's that menu look like? What are your desires? It's interesting. Um, desire is an important thing. Part of our anniversary celebration, we went to a nice restaurant and had a big meal, and I didn't really have to work at the desire to have ice cream. That was just kind of a natural thing, especially when I know it was homemade and super creamy. The only decision I had for the, the waitress was, okay, do I get more ice cream in the, in the just large dish or in the sundae? Because I, 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 I want the most, I want to maximize my ice cream. I didn't have to work at that desire. I went to the ice cream, not the kale and quinoa salad. All right? My desire went there. But we all have different desires. So what's on your menu? What has the strongest pull? What has the strongest pull? What's your greatest attachment? Let's evaluate that for just a moment. How do you know? Let me give you some questions to think about. Where do you go when you're stressed? Where do you go for relief? Where do you go when you have the most freedom, the most choice? Depending on what life stage you're on, you may have more or less time, but everybody's got some time in the day. Where does your mind go? Where does your heart go when you don't have to be someplace else, when you don't have to think about something else? What's the source of your greatest enthusiasm? When do you really come alive? What gets your heart racing? What will you drop everything to go do? What will you drop everything to go do? So get that menu out. Think about those desires. And then I'd ask you this morning, are you willing to reorder some of those loves, some of those priorities? John, the Apostle John says uh, in verse, 1 John 2.16, For everything in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life comes not from the Father, but from the world. So where, where do you locate those desires? Just do some evaluation. There can be things that are good but not ultimate. There can be things that you and I both know, they're just wrong. And they come from someplace that's not a good place. Where does anger bubble out? Where does lust bubble out? Where does self-centeredness come out? Where do you have the courage to evaluate your appetites? So once we, we get those out on the table, we look at them. Second thing I believe we need to do is starve your selfish desires. It's food truck Sunday. I'm on a food kick. You've got to starve your selfish desires. Jesus says this in Matthew 29, 30. If your right eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out and throw it away. It's better for you to lose one part of your body than for the whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to stumble, 
cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. Now, there's some Jesus-style graphic hyperbole here. I don't think he's saying you literally have to cut your eye out. But I would say today, friends, starve, limit, get rid of that which feeds our evil desires, our selfish desires. we got to starve that. Well, we got problems in our culture. we got all kinds of issues. One of them is we have unlimited access to everything. We have unlimited access. And we've got algorithms that are designed to feed our selfish desires. Whatever those may be. That's what the, the, they're designing, whoever that is. I don't know who the they is, but the, in the system that we're in, it's set up to give you more and more of what you want. Now, if what you want's a good thing, great. But I would ask you this morning, what are those selfish desires? What feeds your anger? We can go a lot of different directions here, but what feeds your anger? If it's your social media feed, the nudes you watch, whatever it is, what, what feeds that? If that's an issue for you, starve it. Doesn't mean you can't be engaged. Doesn't mean you don't care about what's going on. Doesn't mean you can't even take an active role in some things. But if there are influences that light up your anger all the time, start those things. Limit those things. What are the things that say, thank God I'm not like blank? If those are the messages we're always hearing, regardless of where you sit on some things, how might we starve that? What feeds your fear? What feeds your lust? What feeds your self-centeredness and your self-righteousness? I don't know what those things are. But if we take Jesus seriously, we ought to take a look at those things. Writer of Hebrews says it this way in Hebrews 3, 12. He says, see to it, brothers and sisters, that none of you has a sinful, unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God, but encourage one another daily as long as it is called today so that none of you may be hardened by sin's deceitfulness. There's a pattern here, and I'm saying starve it, starve it. Okay, we got to starve that. Now, what do we feed? I want, you to, want us to feed your love for Jesus and his kingdom. We got to remove something. We got to starve something. But let's feed. The psalmist, Psalm 34 8, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the one who takes refuge in him. Paul says it in Galatians 5 16. So I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh, 
For the flesh desires what is contrary to the spirit, and the spirit what is contrary to the flesh. So as we do this evaluation, we say, hey, I need to starve this. I need to feed this. How do I do that? Well, there's just some basics. I need to be in the Word. I need to pray. I need to be with God's people. Say, help me see what I don't see. When we're on mission, when we serve, that fuels us, that gives us what we need. So whatever that is for you, whatever you need to starve, let's feed that. Let's feed the good things of God because at the end of the day, whatever we most desire, that's where we're going to go to. And we got to do, I know I got to do some work. What, what is at the core of my desires? And, and is God truly enough? Can I truly sing, Jaira, you provide, you are enough? I think it's fascinating that um, Jesus gave us a meal when he talked about the cross, when he told his disciples what was going to happen. He could have done a lot of things, but he chose to give us a meal to explain his death. He gave us a meal to help us remember because our hearts are so prone to forget. But he gave us a meal to help us experience life together with him. So when we come to the communion table, we come with our attachment to God and his family. Here at Community Church, the table's open to all who've put their faith and trust in him doesn't mean you're perfect, doesn't mean you don't have struggles, doesn't mean you have it all figured out. But we come, and we come to receive, and we come to be reminded that Jesus paid it all, that Jesus is enough. So I would invite you now, if you're a follower of Jesus, to, to put the bread in your hand, to put the wafer in your hand, and we remember that on the night Jesus was betrayed. He he gathered his disciples in the upper room, and after giving thanks, he broke the bread, and he gave it to them and said, this is my body given for you. Take, eat, do this in remembrance of me. So may we receive the bread. And in the same way, Jesus took the cup. He said, this cup is the represents my blood, the blood of the new covenant, blood shed for the forgiveness of sins. It's his righteousness, not ours. It's what the blood reminds us of. So just as we receive the bread, may we now receive the cup together. Let us pray. Father, as we come to you, as we take a hard look into our own hearts, we're thankful for all that the cross means. And we're thankful that it doesn't end there, that you rose 
So as often as we eat the bread and drink the cup, we proclaim your death and we look forward to your return. So Holy Spirit, do the work in us now that only you can. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.